Welcome to Rule Benders, brought to you by Samsung Galaxy. I'm Alexis Fernandez, and in this podcast, I meet the mavericks, the innovators, the rule benders who are defying conventions, shaking up the status quo, and redefining what's possible. In this episode, we're going to explore the rule you can't save the ocean at 86. I have found out that not all the states in Australia have banned the taking of sharks just for their fins, like New South Wales, Queensland, Victoria, they've all banned it, but not Western Australia. Now, I'm 86 and uh, I've just got to hang together to get all this over out there. Rule bending is often seen as a young person's game. Society's view of seniors is that they're past their prime and don't often go against the grain. When we think about rebels, those inspiring others to forge new paths and defy conventions, it's unlikely that we'd think of a retiree. But as the life of today's guest will show, age is no limitation. I spoke to her over Zoom from her home in Sydney. Okay, so today I'm speaking with Valerie Taylor, champion, underwater diver, photographer, filmmaker, and ocean conservationist. Hi, Valerie. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Oh, no, you're not. I actually am. I've been reading up (laughs) on you, and I'm very excited for this interview, actually. Oh, that's nice. So I thought to get started on everything, I think a good conversation to start with would be what is it about the ocean that you love so much? Oh, it's just given me a great adventurous life. And what I do really like about the ocean is it's wild animals. Mm. Some of them are so friendly, just like wild animals on land. I have found the marine animals easier to approach and befriend because they don't, or originally in the old days, didn't have an inherited fear of the human. That's so interesting. Yeah. And you could approach them and they just look at you in amazement. More curious. Now they've been harvested and, yeah, they've learned about people, I think, with a big mm. gun. I have to admit, in the early days, I was one of them. Yeah, with, with your spearfishing. Yes. Yeah, yeah, amazing. So, you, you, I mean, you've obviously spent so much time underwater. How does it feel for you when you're underwater? Is it, is it natural? It's totally natural when I go underwater. Amazing. It's wonderful because I can't fly on land. Nobody can, not by themselves. No. But underwater you can. <laughs> yeah. But on your spear, you drop into the water and you can fly from one side of the reef to the other across a great chasm going down and, on the way, you meet animals who just look at you as you swim past. That's incredible. It doesn't happen on land. Not at all, no, no. So could you please tell me, I'd love to go into your childhood and I'd love to kind of know more about you and figure out how you got to be the person that you are. Well, I was born in Sydney, Australia, Crown Street, and before the first, no, Second World War, my father went to New Zealand to open an Exide battery factory. Mm -hmm. And I went to school there. I got all the usual childhood complaints, measles, mumps, chicken pox. Mm -hmm. But I also got uh, polio, infantile paralysis, 
which stopped my schooling totally and uh, it was quite a while before I recovered. How old were you? I was 12. Wow. And it was very hard at 12 years old to be taken away from your family and put into isolation. And how I recovered when I was 15, my mother said, Valerie, you leave school today and you go and get a job. And I walked out the front door and I thought, the world is mine. My mother just told me I can be whatever I want to be. Well, I got sacked from my first two jobs. I was hopeless. <laughs> then I got a job at the New Zealand Film Unit doing animation, and I was good at that because I could draw. And then I was just getting along quite nicely. I even had a boyfriend. And my parents decided we'd come back to Australia. Uh, I was 16. I got a very good job uh, drawing comic strips. Amazing. Which I did many years. And then Prime Minister was Menzies, and he would not allow anything to be imported into Australia if an Australian could do it. Oh, really? Anyhow, I got a job redrawing American comic strips, and it was a good job. That's so interesting. So these strips were already, they already existed, and you would repurpose them for Australians? Yes. Wow. Australianise them. I have a question. Yeah. Did you feel that you missed out by spending a lot of time, you know, away from school when you had polio? Did you feel that you missed out education-wise or schooling-wise? I missed out education-wise. And when I came back home, my girlfriends had all started into lipstick and boyfriends. And I was still mentally 12 years old. And I had a religious group called the Brethren sent me books. Mm-hmm. They weren't religious books. They were adventure books, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn and 20,000 Leaf Beneath the Sea and Treasure Island. I left school with a, I wanted adventure. I wanted to float down the Mississippi on a raft. I wanted to do all these things. That's where your passion for this life yes. that we have now, yeah. Yeah, that's where it came from. That's incredible. And then, so then I'd love to know about your spearfishing when you became obviously a champion spearfisher. My parents uh, had a waterfront home on Port Hacking. It wasn't anything flash, but it was a home. And my father, from working with the lead, he wasn't very strong and he had a bad stomach and he couldn't eat meat. So I used to go down with a spear gun and spear fish for him. There were plenty of fish. Amazing. The sea was full of fish. It's not like that now. No. And that's where it started. And I, I start, uh, a guy saw me spearing fish and he said, we don't have any good women spearfishermen in our club. Can you join? And I said, sure. I didn't know very many people back then. I joined the club and I was good at it. I won the Australian title. Ron Taylor, he was a member of the club. He won the men's title for the state. And we represented the Australian, and we both won separate titles. And I found that uh, I won the Australian title, I think, three years in a row and won four years. And during that time, he won the World Spearfishing title, only Australian to ever do that. And we were at the Australian Spearfishing Championships at Maroochydore, and we just cleaned out all the good-sized fish of a reef offshore. And we're looking at them lying on the 
sand dead, waiting to be weighed in. And Ron said, this is terrible. Look at what we've done. Look at what we've done to that reef out there. Look at all these dead fish. Mm. We both won. I won the women's, he won the men's, and we just walked away the top of the game and never did it again. That's incredible. And so you made that decision that day with Ron, and then what for you, together or alone, what was your big first win as a conservationist after that? My first win, the real win, was I was the person who had spearing fish using scuba apparatus banned in Australia because once you see a reef fish, you've got scuba on, you can get it. If you're holding your breath, you can run out of breath and get nothing most of the time. Yeah. And that was another thing there. But before that, we were making short documentaries. We were shooting footage for Movie Tone. And then we got a job for the University of Liège in Belgium. And we swam the length of the Barrier Reef, filming in 35 millimetre all the way. Took just over six months. We did it on scuba. It was a scientific expedition. And at the end of that, nobody in the world knew the Barrier Reef like we did. Amazing. And we had a list of things that the scientists wanted us to film. And we thought the list was pretty pathetic because the scientists didn't know what was down there. They had no idea how rich it was. It was absolutely magic. And this is in 1967. We were seeing reefs and places no one had ever seen, ever. Wow. It was a brand new experience. And we didn't realise it, but we were exploring. That's you discovering things that other people had never seen. Absolutely. It's incredible. And filming things that other people had never filmed. And we just went on from there. That's so amazing. I love that. So you, together with Ron, you photographed, you filmed some of the most amazing water locations in the world, including shooting the live shark footage for the movie Jaws. Amazing. I'm wondering if you could tell me how your platform helped you share the passion you had for the ocean. Well, Ron and I both started to see the changes in marine life from when it was pristine over 10 years of spearfishing, I guess, also line fishing and netting the beaches. It's having a very detrimental effect. You couldn't go and spend your whole time in three or four metres of water and see all the marine life. There wasn't much in the shallows at all anymore. And uh, after I had, in 1970, I had taking fish using breathing apparatus banned, I just went on from there. I saw the power hitting of the grey-nosed shark. Mm. I had that protected. First shark in the world to ever be protected by law. How did you do that? Ah, that's the thing. (laughs) This is how you do it. You get a good story, a really good story. Mm -hmm. Then you get it on film. Uh, My husband was a cameraman. He had underwater cameras. And I'm down there patting the grey nurse and sweet shark with all its teeth. And then you go to television. You've got a good story. You've got imagery and you never tell a lie. You make it absolutely true. Mm -hmm. I'll always take it. Incredible. Always, especially if it's sharks. And that's how you get, get things done in the field of conservation. It's a good story, good imagery, television. There has always been a bit of panic around sharks, hasn't there? Huge. 
absolutely huge. There are well over 200 species of shark, and there's about six that could be potentially dangerous. Okay. Wow. And uh, two of the most dangerous live in the open ocean, so they never come to the coast. In Australia, we have the great white, the bull, the bronzy, and a few other bits and pieces that come in. They're not really dangerous, but they could possibly bite you. Sharks don't want to eat people. You go into their environment. Mm. You don't belong there, but you make a decision. It's your decision. A shark can see you and think, wonder what that is. Go up. They don't have hands. They can't feel. They feel with their teeth. Mm -hmm. I've been bitten four times. Four times. Yeah, I've stayed quite still and let the shark let go. He's made a mistake. That's so interesting. I didn't want me. I'm not a nice, juicy fish. Yeah. And every time they let go. Well, the, the first one, I had to beat him over the head and it was my fault. I was carrying a dead fish. Mm-hmm. I was four kilometres out to sea. I felt a bump on my leg and my leg was in a shark's mouth. It was an oceanic blue and it let go. Now, if you're going to be bitten by a shark, make sure you're working for Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> the best care in the world. That's so <laughs> And uh, I was working for a Hollywood production at the time. Amazing. So were your injuries bad? Uh, that one was pretty bad. I didn't recover too fast. The other ones were minor. Mm-hmm. You feel a gentle tug on your foot and you're walking in the ocean. Uh, there's a lot of bull sharks around because that's where the fishermen throw their guts and the heads of the fish they clean. Right. I was there. I went there with my camera hoping to photograph a bull shark. I'm kneeling on the bottom and I feel a tug on my foot. I had on sneakers and it's in the shark's mouth. I turn around and she looked embarrassed and I felt stupid and she let go and I realised there was blood coming out of my shoe. She looked embarrassed. That's so uh, funny. How cute. <laughs> and so, well, she'd made a mistake. She mm. just let go. And I walked out, scorching a bit of blood. And my husband said, what are you getting out for? I said, oh, I got bitten on the foot. He said, not the camera. I said, no, the camera's fine. And he just got in and came away. <laughs> His priorities. <laughs> Absolutely. I picked up the above water camera and gave it to an onlooker. And as I took my shoe off, I said, please film this, video this. And I had four punches, two of them very deep. And I just put those little Band-Aids that clipped together over them. Yeah. Really? Is that it? That was it, yes. Wow. So w- when it comes to conservation, what do you think are the biggest barriers for you? The government, because they basically you're speaking to people who really don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And in, as far as the ocean is concerned, the fishermen, you know, the poor fishermen, they can't make a living unless they get into the, uh, the marine national parks. Right. The, 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 no more fish outside. Why are there no more fish? or not many fish, mm-hmm. because they've fished it out. Some years ago now, they had the Australian Fishing Championships in the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park. What? That's how much those two words mean. They're two words to make the people of Australia feel comfortable about it all. Marine Park are two words. You can fish there, you can spearfish there. It's got to have Marine National Park. Right, okay. Got to be a a national 
thing, not just two words on a piece of paper. Yes, yes. Or it has to have the word sanctuary zone, Mm. marine sanctuary zone. It's a sanctuary for fish. They were going to open up sanctuary zones in South Australia to fishermen because the uh, fishermen were having such a hard time getting enough fish. And uh, I went down there and protested. I sat on the steps of Parliament House in South Australia in my best clothes with my fake diamonds and a sign telling the people of South Australia that if they opened up the marine parks underwater, the next thing they'd do would be opening them up above water, mm-hmm. and that would affect everybody. And the people were gathered. That some uniformed men tried to move me. I said, don't you touch me. They knew better than to touch me, and I just sat there. Uh, people came and the kids stood next to me, took photographs, and finally... Then the reporters came. That's what I was wanting. Mm. That night I flew home. I paid my own way down there. I did it all by myself. I flew home to Sydney and at 8.30 that night I got a phone call from the member for Port Hughes. And he said, what was all that about, Mrs. Turner? I told him. He said, I'll cross the floor. (laughs) And he did. And it was stopped by one boat. Now they're trying to do it again. Fishermen never quit. Yeah, so I think given that, I would imagine you have you would have made a lot of enemies along the way. Oh, death threats. Death threats. Oh, definitely. How do you like to pick up the phone after dinner at night and have a voice, Mrs Taylor, we all earn our living on the sea and one day we'll find you. Oh, God. Lovely stuff. Ron was expecting a bomb through the front door. I knew they're all cowards and they wouldn't. The problem with the marine animals, they're free for the taking. A farmer doesn't take for nothing. He has to clear the land, plough the field, yes, plant grass or cattle or whatever. Mm-hmm. So he gets a crop. Next year, a fisherman just harvests. Yes. He never puts anything back. A farmer just harvests and didn't put anything back. Next year he'd have nothing. Yeah, that's so true. Oh, well, it was hard work. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And it always, and I don't think you've, you've ever stopped. I've looking into everything you've done, a lot of what you're talking about happened, that was in the 70s and 80s and even prior to that. And then more recently you were awarded the American Nature Photographer of the Year and that was in 97. And then you inducted into the Women's Divers Hall of Fame in 2000. Yes. And in 2010 received the Order of Australia for your conservation works. Are you ever going to slow down? That's just amazing. Well, right now we're talking about a feature film and another television series. Now, I'm 86, mm-hmm. and uh, I've just got to hang together to get all this over yes. out there. Because not just good for me. It doesn't mean anything to me, really. I'm not going to live that much longer. And I've, I've managed to get enough money together so I can live comfortably. But I want to do it for my country, for my, the people in my country. Mm. If they do a film, I want it made here. Yes. And uh, it'll employ Australians in the business. I also have an idea for the television series, which I'll talk to my production manager about, about what I think would be a good one. I just love that you're, you know, like you said, you're 86. You're keeping so much of that passion and conversation going. And because you've got such a history of knowledge about the ocean, how things have evolved since when you started spearfishing and then got into conservation. I think 
it's really cool that you're doing this. I don't think there are many 86-year-olds who are saving the ocean, working on conservation for the ocean. And you give a perspective that most people wouldn't have. You've seen things that most people wouldn't have seen. And I love that you're still, you know, you're pushing for the TV show, you're pushing for this film. And I don't, I can't see you ever stopping. Oh, time is going to stop me, I can assure you. <laughs> it's already slowed me down, right? <laughs> it doesn't sound like you're going very slow, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, I need help nowadays. I, I, I can see, I can see it happening. I once, there was a time when I remembered everybody's name. Now I don't. <laughs> I, all, one thing I wanted to ask you is what are you, alongside, of course, you're doing a lot with the, this TV show and the film, but what are you working on now in conservation? Well, <clears throat> I've just discovered, I thought I had stopped the taking of sharks off the coast of Australia just for their fins and dumping them back whole, just cutting the fins off. It's a terrible thing to see a, a finless shark on the bottom terror in its eyes, trying to swim away. Mm. And it can't. It can't move. It's twisting its body, but it can't go anywhere. Oh, that's awful. And, and not just one, dozens. That's in Indonesia. I saw dozens. And I have found out that not all the states in Australia have banned the taking of sharks just for their fins. Other countries have. Only states have, like New South Wales, Queensland, Victoria, they have all banned it, yeah, but not Western Australia. Wow, it's a it's a sad thing. The Americans have banned it. The Canadians have banned it. The United Kingdom has banned it. We haven't. It seems so backward. We're very backward that way. Very backward as far as conservation goes. I've discovered some of the arguments I've had have been horrific. We don't seem to want to do anything until it's almost too late. Mm. Although the sea is huge, it's not a garbage chip. And I think the worst thing that's happening now is plastic. Plastic. It's coating the beaches up north, but it's not Australian plastic. It's Indonesian plastic. There's thousands, probably hundreds of thousands, of little villages on islands. They don't have a garbage collection. They don't have a tip. They just throw everything in the ocean. I know because I've been there, I've seen that. Indonesia had the best tropical diving in the world, and but it still offers a lot. That's good. Well, tell me about yes. the, the protecting the seagrass. Uh, there's nowhere near as much as there used to be, and it's a very important part of the shallow marine world. A lot of animals live in it. You see going through the seagrass, dead tracks of sand, like a trail. It's where somebody's anchor has dragged. Mm -hmm. And as it gets dragged, it digs up the grass. And apparently, I don't know how long it takes, a long time for that grass to grow. In Jarvis Bay, the trawlers who trawl for scallops realised that the big protected area, which had never been trawled for scallops, it was all seagrass, the fine for trawling illegally, was less than the cost of what they'd get for the scallops. Mm -hmm. The price of scallops had gone up, the vine hadn't. And they raced in there and they went all over these huge seagrass beds, trails through the seagrass everywhere. And not only that, the dead juvenile animals. Yeah, that's so sad. Well, that's what happens 
free for the taking. Mm. They closed it. That they closed it off again. It was actually belonged to the navy. Mm-hmm. They closed it off again, but not until they worked day and night trawling through there just for the scallops. Yeah, as you know, scallops are very expensive to buy. That's right, and like you said, the fine doesn't go up, but the price does. So. Well, the fine did go up. It did go <laughs> it took up. Them a while. Okay. To get it up. Yeah, it took them a while. Took them a couple of weeks to get it up. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> so, one final question for you: Do you think you feel that society holds back people that are older or someone of your age? Do you feel ever held back by society? Never been held back by anything. <laughs> but that's the best. It's my personality. Mm-hmm. And my mother taught me that I could be anything I wanted. What what gifts? How lucky I am. I think that made me what I am. I, I had to go out there and make my own way, but I could be anything I wanted. And uh, all I had to do was do it. Yeah. Some young women, usually women, contact me, want to know how they can be like me. Mm. And I say, think of something needs doing and do it. That's all you can do. That's all I can tell you. Yeah. I can't tell you how to be like me any other way. That's yeah. so I'm so I'm very inspired by you. I think so many people would be inspired by that and I love your attitude and I love that you just know that nothing holds you back and I know you say that you're slowing down but I really don't think you are. I think you're doing so much and Oh, I am. Um, well, I am, I am. <laughs> yeah. If this is slowing down then that's amazing. It's been an incredible chat. I have learnt so much from you. The listeners are going to absolutely love everything. You've lifted an interest within me for ocean conservation as well. So thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you, Alexia. The ocean needs all the help it can get right now. Yeah. If the ocean dies, we die. That's it. Simple as that. We die. So true. Thank you. Thank you for your time. That was amazing. Thank you. I enjoyed that. Now I can go and have breakfast. (laughs) When Valerie was young, a debilitating illness threatened to take her freedom away from her. But through books, she discovered a world of adventure that inspired her to seek a life of excitement beneath the waves. Initially, a person who robbed the ocean of fish, she soon fell in love with marine life and forged a different path of learning and conservation. The work she did created new understandings of underwater life particularly the behaviour of sharks that challenged popular beliefs and scientific opinion of the time. Valerie battled for years to protect the environment, making many enemies in the process, but also scoring more wins. Now, at 86, she continues to educate and inspire others, spreading her love and respect for the amazing things to be found in the sea. This has been the final episode in the current season of Rulebenders. I want to thank all the amazing guests I've spoken to on the show for sharing their stories and thoughts. Their experiences and success is certainly a reminder of what can be achieved by going against the grain. So here's to defying convention. Here's to shaking up the status quo. Here's to being a rule bender. From Samsung Galaxy, this has been Rule Benders. My name is Alexis Fernandez and thank you for listening.